Hello, friends, and welcome. Welcome. It's uh, my pleasure to have you here. Lou, how are you? Very good. How are we doing today? You good, promised good. Me, you made promises to me this morning. What we, was that? <laughs> you promised me is we're going to take a deep philosophical dive. So I'm very I'm looking very much forward to this. Yes, this is my friends an extremely deep from a philosophical standpoint chapter, and this verse particularly you'll find is quite heavy. Um, so be pre-warned. It can be extremely fascinating and very interesting or it can be very deep for you. You decide. <laughs> so verse 4, chapter 15, verse 4 says, Then that goal should be sought, where, having gone, they do not return again. I seek refuge in that primeval Purusha, supreme being, alone, wherefrom streamed forth ancient activity. Now, on the surface, this seems like a very simple or, but un, un, non-understandable verse. You look at it and say, what is he talking about? <laughs> but it's pretty deep. Uh, and you'll see that each phrase in this four-line verse is very, very significant, which is not understandable unless it's explained to you. So you remember in verse 3, Krishna said in the Gita, cut asunder the Ashwatta tree with the axe of non-attachment. You remember the tree was portrayed yeah. upside down with the roots on the top, which is Brahman, and the rest of the tree, and that is the world in which we live. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you remember that we said that consciousness from where the whole Brahman starts is known in Sanskrit or in the Upanishads as Purusha. Now, Purusha literally means person or man. So the question then becomes, why did the Upanishads call consciousness a person? Mm -hmm. And we will see that later in this verse where consciousness is given almost a stature as a person because of certain ways in which consciousness behaves as if it is a human being, as if it is a person. And that's fascinating to me because if you remember, we talked that consciousness, life, spirit combines with matter to form an entity such as myself or yourself. You and I, we are both a combination of consciousness or life or spirit as an energy and the matter which we are. Now, consciousness in and of itself is in Sanskrit known as paripurna, means it is complete in all respects. There's happiness galore, bliss, million, million, million times more than what you have, what you can imagine. It is consciousness, it is existence, it is bliss, it is everything. Now, when it joins together with the body, it starts that consciousness, that purusha, starts to identify with the body, the mind, the intellect, the senses, and it no longer becomes paripurna, no longer becomes completely happy. And then, because there is that void of not having, exist, not having happiness, what happens is you and I start to look towards the world, that upside-down tree, for our happiness. Mm -hmm. 
big mistake because that world does not have happiness in it, as we will see in this verse. And we keep pursuing it for desires that we think, once we get fulfilled, we'll be very happy. And the more you desire it, the more you seek it, more desires pop up. And the more desires that you keep following, the more desires that keep popping up, the further you go into this morass or this quicksand-like hole in which you are drowning to be further and further away from where you really should be, which is seeking the Atman or Brahman or consciousness, right? Are we, are we clear so far, Lou? Yes, and this sounds like things we've been talking about since chapter one here. This all seems like this has all been leading up to this, this particular verse. Right. So we've been talking about this, and the Gita sort of does this repetitively and in simpler terms until it gets to this point. So let's look at desires. So once you get into the desires, you don't really have concentration and the necessary means to meditate upon to get to Purusha, right? right? When you're sitting down and meditating, you've got to be able to push aside all thoughts and desires from your body, your mind, your intellect. But when there are desires, that doesn't happen. You, in fact, start to think more and more about what should I be doing, what's next, etc. And desires, there is no end to it, as we said. So as an example, <clears throat> you think about a prisoner who's in jail. And you say, what do you really want? And he says, I just have one wish. I've been in this jail for so many years, just one desire. I just want to get out of here. I just want to get out of this jail. What happens? His wish is granted. He's out of the jail. He said, now I just want, I just want one good meal, nice, heavy meal. And then one after the next, more desires, more desires. There's never any end. That's a simple example. But all of us know desires like that. I just want to get out of medical school. Yeah. Once you get out of medical school, I just want to get into this residency. Once you get into that, you say, I just want to do this. I just, never any end. I just want to get married. Once you get married, I just want to have one child. We've not, we've tried for years, no baby. I just want one, then I'll be happy. Once right. the baby's, you want to get married first, then you want to have a baby. Once the baby's born, you say, quickly look at his fingers, eyes, ears. I hope, I just one wish that my baby's perfect. And this goes on and on and on till the day you die. There's never any dearth or end to these desires. Right. The conviction, though, is so strong inside you and me, all of us, that if I get this next desire, then that's it. That's all I really want. That's the conviction. So we have to recognize by introspection, by study, by thinking about what it is that you're doing, that this desire, no matter what you have, is never going to be satisfied and you're never going to feel completely happy. Jeff Bezos, one of the richest men in the world, right? I keep bringing up his example because he just shot himself into outer space, right? He thought right. he'd be happy, very happy. Came back down and what did he give, right? $100 million to so many of his friends, Van Jones being one of them. And everybody that gets the money thinks, because really what is money in and yeah. of itself? Paper, that's all it is, or coins, metal, really doesn't have any. You can't taste it, you can't smell it, you can't eat it, but you can exchange it for sense objects. Yes. That's really all that money is. 
It's a conduit to your desire. It's conduit to your desire. Mm -hmm. And you get $100 million, or like Jeff Bezos says, billions of dollars. You say, this is complete happiness, but it's not. So we have a void. And to fill that void, we seek to go to the world. The main theme of the Vedas and Vedanta, the main theme is get back to yourself, to the Atman, to Brahman. Tattvamasi, you are that. Get back there. And the rest of the Vedas, Upanishads, everything is just details. That's all it is. So the main theme is get back. So you have a seed which has matter and it has life in it. Without the life, the seed itself cannot produce anything. That is the key. Now, here comes what you were asking about, Luke. In that upside-down tree, the world, right? Mm -hmm. That is known in Sanskrit as samsar. Samsar is the worldly goings-on in the world. The whole world, all of its business transactions, the emotional transactions, romance, barter, all of that is considered one transaction that's constantly moving called samsar. If you look at that samsar, you say, where did it start? Where did it start, this samsar? It has no beginning. It has no end that we can see. It has no continuance in the middle. Now, there was a rishi known as Gaudapada. Gaudapada has said that if something has no beginning, and if it has no end, then it is not there in the present time. Very interesting thing. If you think about it, yeah. if you say something had no beginning, no end, therefore it is really not there in the beginning. Now, you're going to get fed up of this <laughs> snake and rope analogy, but it's, it's in the Upanishads and it comes up constantly because it is a perfect analogy for Brahman and the world. <clears throat> if you look at this rope and you don't see it as a rope because it's dark and instead you see a snake, you say, where did that snake come from? I don't know. Where was the beginning of that snake? Because you don't know that it was a rope, you don't know where it came from. You imagine where it came from, but you don't know. You say, where does it end? You don't know because it's, just, it's sitting there. The rope hasn't moved. It's not going. Where's the end? You don't know. Therefore, it's not really there. Another example. There's a clay pot or you take these pencils, you know, dark black pencils, and you draw a portrait of somebody. Before that clay pot became a clay pot, it was all clay. The clay pot wasn't there. Before the pencil came and you drew that portrait, there was no portrait. So now you look at it, you say, yeah, this is a clay pot. It's existing there. You look at the drawing, you say it's existing there. But then next thing you take an eraser, magic eraser, you erase the painting. It's not there anymore. No beginning, no end. Therefore, that painting was never there. That clay pot, you crush it back into clay and you say, what happened to that clay pot? It's gone. No beginning, no end. So in essence, the clay pot wasn't there. So what Gaudapada says is that essentially, and if you look at scientifically, we talk about this Big Bang theory that the world wasn't really there, it came. So there was no beginning such, because where do we know where this came? 
and there's no end because it will go at some point that really the world is not really there. It is a figment of your consciousness. That's a hard, very deep conscious, very deep analogy and, and a difficult thing to imagine. But the analogy also in the Upanishads is that of the dream because in the same thing happens in a dream. You believe so much that the dream exists, mm. but you're fast asleep. And when you wake up, the dream is gone. But at the time you were in the dream, you felt it was so real. But was the dream real? Some may say, yeah, the dream was real, but really it was just a thought, a part of your consciousness, a part of your, although you were asleep, that is also known as consciousness. That consciousness conjured up the dream that you really believed. Now you may say, nah, nah, the dream was real. Okay, let's use the analogy of a mirage. Right? Is that what it's called, Lou, in the mirage. desert? Yes. Mirage? So yeah. let's look. use the analogy of a mirage. In Sanskrit, in the Upanishads, they talk about this mirage. They say it looks so real. There's trees, there's oasis, there's water there, and you say, oh, in the desert, that is real. That's real. No, I'm walking towards it. Then it disappears. Mm -hmm. Now, was that real? You may say, no, that was a mirage. Then it's the same thing as the dream. And what the Upanishads say is, just as you are convinced that that dream, that mirage, all of these things that we talked about were so real, this world is essentially a something made up of your consciousness. And there are thousands and thousands of lectures that you can get, books that talk about this in such detail that it will make your head spin. You won't understand it, but it's very, very deep. But this is enough for now. Let's go uh, further. So the clay pot or painting that we were talking about, before it was born, it was just clay. After it is dead, after the clay pot or the painting is erased, it goes back to what it was before. Upon careful analysis, the pot is seen to be pure awareness or consciousness, and that's it. In Sanskrit, known as Chaitanya, because it disappears upon analysis. When you analyze it, just like the mirage disappears, the dream disappears, that the pot disappears, and if you analyze it, this whole samsara disappears upon analysis. Why? Why does it disappear? Because just like the snake has been erroneously superimposed upon, the snake has been superimposed erroneously upon the rope, this world has been superimposed upon Brahman. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the world doesn't exist in that, see, I'm tapping this table in front of me. It's real. If I bang my head on it, I, hey, it's, oh, it's just imaginary. It's just a mirage. Bang my head on it, I get a big bruise because it's real. In that sense, it's real. But it is like the snake. If I go to grab it, I will feel something because I'm holding on to the rope. But then I realize it's not a snake. It is the rope that I'm holding, right? right? Similarly, there is something there. That's the substratum upon which this erroneously, the snake has been superimposed. So this world is real. You can feel it. You can get bang your head on it. You can get a bruise on your head. It is real, but it is really Brahman upon which this is superimposed. So next point is that Brahman is true reality. If you see Brahman as Brahman, 
then all of this superimposed world, uh, beauty, sense objects, everything disappears because now you're seeing Brahman as Brahman. Now you're seeing the rope as the rope, not as the snake. So you see the snake as real until you really learn that the rope is real. And then, and only then, does the snake become unreal. Let me repeat that. You continue to see the snake as real as long as you don't recognize the rope. Once you realize that the rope is real, the snake becomes unreal and disappears. So you see this world and the sense objects and everything around you as real because you don't see the underlying Brahman. Once you focus on the Brahman, the world, sense objects, everything disappears because you recognize it's all part of one. Once you realize that Brahman is the same within you and you and you and all of us, then all that individuality and separation between everybody disappears. Everybody looks just like Brahman. From Brahman's viewpoint, everything is Brahman. Everything else is only superimposed upon it and therefore has no beginning, no end, and no being now. The world and all its components has to be seen in its true form. Shankaracharya says that the world and all its contents are seen and immediately after they're seen, they change. Key thing here, right? You look at a river and you say, ah, this river, you know, beautiful river, it's, it's water looks very still, although it's flowing, it looks very still. It's not changing. Yes, it is. Every droplet of water that is passing by is now a new droplet. Every piece of water that's flowing by is new. The old one has already gone past you. That river is not the same. I look at myself in the mirror and one second later, I'm different because it's a new breath. One cell, many cells have changed in my body while I'm looking at myself. The whole world, everything is changing second to second to second. No beginning, no end, no not present at the present time. So Shankaracharya says, the world and all its contents are seen and immediately perishes. It immediately perishes. When he says that that one piece of water has gone by immediately and another one has come, that old one has died, new one is born. This cells in my body, it's looking at a certain way, it dies, new cells come, and that old has died, the new one has come about. Anything that is seen and perishes the next moment because it is not the same and completely different, it's gone moment later. We have no way of keeping any object or person in the same minute to minute. Therefore, there's no beginning, no end, no being of its own. Same thing. Once you analyze anything, the objects disappear. So creation itself, this whole creation, what we call creation, came from being unmanifest. Unmanifest means it's not manifest as the world, right? People say God, which is consciousness, was just a force, energy, before God presented as the world or as human beings. So it became from unmanifest to manifest. Being ma unmanifest meaning that life came inside matter and made me a person, and now that same consciousness, that same God, that same creation has become me because of 
the matter that it has imbibed. So it, it, then it goes back. Once I die, the matter will disappear and creation goes back to becoming unmanifest, right? We've talked about this. Unmanifest to manifest to unmanifest again. Again, no beginning, no end. Therefore, no being. When you go to sleep, the whole world disappears. When you are awake, it is never the same from moment to moment. It keeps changing and disappearing. And we've given these examples. So in Sanskrit, it says, yatha brahmande tatha pinde. Means whatever is the macrocosm, whatever you see in the world, the same thing exists within you. And that's a whole other discussion mm. that we can have. But you will find that everything that is within you, the way you're structured as a human being and every microscopic thing is repeated on a much larger scale in the universe. If you try to look at the reality of the whole cosmos, it disappears. When you start to analyze it from a philosophical standpoint, really good philosophers, when they start to an analyze it, it just disappears. You say, well, it doesn't exist. The form is not as it is. Just like looking at the snake and the rope. You cannot see the beginning or the end or the um, present time. When you see a snake instead of a rope, the rope is true, the snake is not. But you cannot know that the snake is unreal until the rope is seen as real. So science cannot understand this world. It had discovered atoms, and then it went on to electrons and protons, and then the string theory and multiple explanations. But you will not be able to understand it, really. To, to, today, they still don't have an explanation for life or for the world or God. Just like a dream. You cannot mm -hmm. find the beginning or the end or the middle. Swami Dayanand says, we don't know this tree or its form. Really, there's no tree, no world. There's just name and form. For everything, there's just name and form. For example, if you say, what is the name and form of space? You say, space is space. That's the name. What's its form? You cannot see the form of space unless you have a ceiling and a the ceiling and you don't have the floor, there's no space. What about air? Air? Oh, yeah, I know what air is. Yeah, is it hydrogen? Is it nitrogen? Is it oxygen? What is it? Carbon dioxide? So you don't really know. It's just, as Swami says, it is just name and form. So we cannot say that the upside-down tree of samsara is non-existent. Because just like I said, if I bang my head there, I will see. Whoops. Sorry oh, about that. You bang I, your head, you'll drop the camera. <laughs> <laughs> so just like I said, you cannot say it's non-existent. Because if I bang my head against this table, I will get a bruise on my head. So... If it were non-existent, you wouldn't even talk about it. So we know that the tree is existent. Um, at the same time, we know that the tree, we cannot say that the tree has an independent existence because we have to put it there. We cannot say that the tree of samsara is non-existent, nor can we say that it's existing. Shankaracharya said that is like a dream or a mirage. It appears to be real, but when you analyze it in terms of it being real, it is not. It is known, he says, as mitya. Mitya is the same term as we would consider mirage, something that appears to be real but is not. So 
again, going back to that example, before the pot came, before you made that pot out of clay, it was all clay, right? We're clear with that. Yes. Before the world or beings came, all was just existence, consciousness and existence. That existence was given the name Purusha. Purusha, wait a second, Purusha or person. Why did the Upanishads, such brilliant people who came up with these philosophical things, give consciousness, existence, God, the name Purusha or person? The reason being from that has come everything, from that Purusha, from that person, just like one man fathers many children, that God, that existence has populated everything here because from Brahman comes everything because of that. If there was no rope, you wouldn't see a snake. If there was no Brahman, you wouldn't see all of this rest of this stuff. By using the term Purusha or person, the Upanishads ex establishes that existence is conscious like a being. Now, this conscious is different than consciousness. Mm -hmm. Just like you and I are conscious, we think, we have feelings. Upanishads are saying that that existence is conscious, just like a person. We think that electricity gives rise to light or fan or air conditioning or uh, coldness in a refrigerator, but it has no, nothing of its own. It just gives life. Here, He's saying that pure consciousness, in essence, is like a person. It gives rise to, is it, it is conscious, just like a being. So, a conscious being who is completely poor, completely full, happy, existing, um, that is what the Upanishads describe Purusha as. The Atman inside us is the really the never-born consciousness that was never born, never died. It was there before creation. To him, the jiva says, I surrender. Jiva is the Atman, the combination of Purusha and Prakriti, the individual, you and I. If you then say, I surrender to you, not to the world, I surrender to you, it's like a huge big wave, a tsunami, thinking, oh, I'm so big in this ocean but then surrendering to the rest of the ocean, saying, I am you, you are me. And then the tsunami surrenders to the ocean. It's saying, if you surrender, if you give up your identification with the body, the mind, the intellect, and your senses, all of these desires go away. You can then start to contemplate on Brahman, and you can become Brahman. And that's what this verse 4 is talking about. So, only the false person that is me right now, me, the false person. I'm not the real person. The real person is the Atman within me. Only the false person can surrender to the real person or the Atman. The Atman is the huge ocean. I, the small I, am the wave. And I say, I surrender. First, dismiss everything that is not the self. So the world, sense objects, outside things that distract you. The very person inquiring what is real, what is not, is the one surrendering. Seek the source of the world within yourself, all the activities from which this, uh, were, where this started. These are all the functions of consciousness. Now, some practical ways in which how to do this. 
this is less heavy and philosophical, Lou. (laughs) So, two Sanskrit words. One is viveka and one is vairagya. Viveka is discrimination, meaning is this necessary, is this not necessary? This is what the intellect does, viveka. Is this good, is this not good? Viveka. Intellect says, is this the self and is this non-self? Atma and anatma. Anatma is non-atma. That is viveka. Vairagya means dispassion, dislike. I don't like this, vairagya. Now, you want to get rid of your desires for things. You have to use viveka and you say, okay, this is not something that I should be finding attractive. I should not find great feeling for this. I should not covet it. How do you get rid of that feeling? So as soon as, let's say, I find something very attractive and you say, you know, a a person who is uh, a teacher of yours and you say, wow, this guy is really so smart. But then you find a major defect in him, that teacher, immediately you lose respect. Right. You say, I don't want to listen to this guy anymore. I don't want to you know, follow him. He, I, I don't believe in him. because Why? Because Vairagya, that one piece of disgust that you found, you say, I don't like it, you have turned away from him. Problem with that is you're now going to turn to something else. That's one thing. So when I was 20 years old and I was flying out of India to come to the United States, it was the time of miniskirts, Lou. Yeah. And I had never seen anybody in a miniskirt before. <laughs> I was 20 years old, full of testosterone and young man. And I'm sitting at the airport. I came from India, sitting at the airport. I forget it was London or Paris. And there were all these women in miniskirts around me. And my eyes were just going from one person to the next. And this woman sat directly across from me in a miniskirt. Very, very attractive woman. Now, Viveka. Discrimination, vairagya, disgust. I kept looking at her, couldn't take my eyes off of her. You know, 20-year-old boy just out of uh, India in Paris. Next thing I know, although I couldn't take my eyes off of her, she put her finger in her nose deep inside, and she's (laughs) digging, digging, digging inside her nose, picked out a booger, and to my disgust, she put it in her mouth and ate it. Oh, God. Yeah, okay. Now... I was so disgusted, I could not bear to bring my eyes to look at her again. It's a good example, I think, of how something that you find so attractive, one minute, next minute, you say, I don't like this at all. I couldn't bring myself to look at her because the thought of what she did was so disgusting. You go to a restaurant. You love the restaurant and the food. You go inside the kitchen. And I know because I've been part of the ownership of a restaurant. It's disgusting in there. No matter how much you tell the chefs and the people to keep it clean, they just can't because it's just so rushed. Any restaurant you go, it is bound to be disgusting. Mm. When you go, you say, ah, I don't like this. I'm never eating here again, even though it's your favorite restaurant. But what happens? Immediately you find that you go, your mind goes to a different restaurant. So you get vairagya. Your mind immediately gets withdrawn from any place where there's a defect. So what you when you get vairagya you jump from one to another you dislike one thing your mind bounces to another so that's a lower level of vairagya higher level of vairagya is to discriminate between unreal and real atma and anatma and that that is un, unreal 
I'm sorry, I'm taking so much time. <laughs> but you have to develop this, this passion or vairagya and then cut this tree. That's what he said in verse 3. That dispassion, that discrimination and dispassion, viveka and vairagya to cut the tree is what is necessary uh, because otherwise the desires keep coming up. So firmly withdraw your mind from the world. Then do karma yoga, bhakti yoga, jnana yoga. Thus your desires reduce. Then you're ready for meditation. Complete detachment from the world. Right now you seek refuge in the world. You need people, you need comforts, you need sense objects. I seek refuge in the primeval purusha, is what this verse says. Not the world. Ultimately, it all comes from the Atman or Brahman. Atman is complete bliss. You seek that bliss because you are devoid of bliss. But you seek it in the world, in the wrong place. Once you go to Atman or Brahman, you will never come back. An educated, literate person can never again become illiterate. Um, so the Atman is not the body, not the mind, not the intellect or the senses. All that is anatma. Gita says it is very well rooted, very, very well rooted. It is known as Suvi Ruddha Mura. That means there is no better rooting than in ignorance. Ignorance can only be uprooted by knowledge. To fell it, to knock it down, the axe that is required is that of asanga or detachment. You cannot cut this tree, this world, this samsara with its roots of ignorance unless you use detachment. Like we said before, viveka and vairagya. You have to distinguish between the subject and the object. Instead, you're identifying with your body, your mind, your intellect, your sense organs. And that has to stop. That is wrong. You need to detach from that identification with the body, mind, intellect. That is the axe. After withdrawing your attention from the world, then you seek the supreme reality. Having attained which, as the verse says, you don't come back. You're not born, you don't die. This sansara, how to reach that supreme state? By surrendering to the supreme self, just like the wave surrenders to the ocean, from whom all the activities have come into being. So first vairagya, then look for the source. But just like cutting a tree with one with an axe one stroke is not enough you've got to keep hitting it keep hitting it keep hitting it so don't think that if you just do vairagya or viveka one time it's enough you've got to do it consistently you say till when when how long I have to do it until the sansara disappears completely so one blow doesn't fell the tree it has to be multiple blows and it has to be firm thrid asanga detachment beginning with the external world. So when you say my child, again, that's an attachment. My friends, attachment, my family, my car, my money, all of this is just tying you further and further into this. By being firm, drid, you have to be repetitive. You will find that your desire to participate in those kinds of activities that your good friends from the past used to just disappears. I can tell you this from a personal standpoint. <clears throat> it is true, believe me. You no longer feel like you want to go to parties. If you go to parties, people, what they talk about, you say, I don't really have any interest in this anymore. And they can talk about things in which you might have been participating in before no longer interests you. But don't go to the mountains and run away. 
from this. You say, I don't like these parties. I don't like this. I'm just going to go away to the mountains. You will become extremely frustrated because you're not developed for that anymore. Instead, you can gain detachment through number one, knowledge, what you're doing right now, studying, listening, imbibing, and giving it some thought. Number two, attaching it to attaching yourself, your, your thoughts to higher. When you think of something higher, the lower falls off. The desires for the lower fall off. Proper inquiry, as you're doing now, thinking, questioning, and self-analysis. So where do your attachments lie? Only plain detachment is not enough. There has to be something positive to replace the attachment. Otherwise, what happens? You just attach to something else. Right. A husband, a wife, child, money, not going to help. You must have a desire to be free from all these attachments. The desire to be free from all these attachments must be then converted to a desire to know. Once you know this, just listening to this one lecture will already have taken you up one notch. Um, so I hope there's more that I can talk about because as I said, this is a deep one. How yeah. long have we gone? Uh, 35 30, minutes? 30, yeah, 37 minutes, yeah. Wow, okay. So friends, please, You've got to listen to this again and again. That's all that is being asked of us by the Vedanta. It doesn't say go to temple, to church, write down anything, donate anything, money. It doesn't say that. It just says just gain the knowledge. Just listen to something like this, imbibe it, take it inside, write it down, and think about it. So we'll see you next time for verse 5.